Let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for our lesson. This is quite an interesting chapter, and as we read it and study it, it's evident that uh, some people questioned Paul's apostleship. They questioned his rights and his motives even. It's uh, not so bad to have your rights questioned, but it is bad to have your motives questioned as to why you do certain things. But Paul had this kind of opposition, and he had this kind of questioning, and I suppose you and I are not exempt from it altogether either. So in answering the, the Corinthians that had such questions in view, he shows his credentials in verses 1 and 2 as an apostle. He says, am I not an apostle? Though some did question that he was. He says, am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Now, notice Paul here gives his credentials. First of all, he tells them that he's free and that he's seen Christ Jesus the Lord. They knew the fact that he had seen the Lord and uh, he had proclaimed it. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe it's verse 8, after he names that he was seen of Cephas in verse 5 and of above 500 brethren in verse 6, and after that in verse 7 of James and all the apostles, and then he says in verse 8, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. So Paul had seen the Lord. Now, this was one of the requirements of an apostleship. And Paul says, you know I've seen the Lord. Five hundred brethren have seen the Lord. The twelve have seen the Lord. James has seen the Lord. He was seen of Peter, of Cephas. He doesn't go back and go into all the appearances of Christ after the resurrection. But he does mention that he saw him as one born out of due time. And then he goes on to tell him in these two verses, if you have the text, he says uh, in the last part of verse 1, Are not ye my work in the Lord? And in verse 2, he says, yet doubtless I'm an apostle to you, for the seal of mine apostleship are ye, you Corinthians, in the Lord. You're the seal of my apostleship. In other words, the Lord had sent him to them. He had set his approval upon Paul by saving them under his ministry. If you turn back to Acts chapter 18, we'll find in verses 9 through 11. Well, let's read verse 8. Through 11. It says, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. And it says in verse 9, Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city, in Corinth. And so the result was, in verse 11, and he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So he preached there in Corinth a long time. And they were definitely the seal of Paul's apostleship. Why should they begin now to question him? And yet they do. I guess as long as we have human beings, we have those that that uh, are going to cause problems. But anyway, in verse 3, Paul says, mine answer to them that do examine me is this. And he begins to show his rights from verses 4 through 6. Let's read Paul's rights. Uh, the verses 1 and 2 was a proof of his apostleship. 
they were his credential that the Lord had called him and that he had seen the Lord, which made him an apostle, or at least qualified to be an apostle, and he had saved the Corinthians through his ministry, which was a seal of his apostleship, and he says, My answer to them that trouble me, or examine me, is this. And he begins to give his right in verse 4. He says, Have we not power to eat and to drink? And he was speaking of Paul and Barnabas. He says, Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles? And as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas. Now the brethren of the Lord had by this time become believers. And they were followers. They were associated closely to Jesus as far as the flesh is concerned. Uh, these others were associated, the, the apostles, Cephas and the other apostles, were associated to Jesus at, in spiritual matters. And he said, if these two privileged groups can follow the Lord and they have power to lead about a, a sister or a wife, in other words, their families to be taken care of as they go about their work in the Lord, what about Barnabas and myself? He says in verse 8, Or I only and Barnabas have not we power to forbear working? In other words, should we not give our time to the ministry and be supported as well as the other apostles? Do we not have this right if they have this right? So he was entitled to the same privilege as the other apostles. Now then, beginning with verse 7, we'll enter upon the thought of of, uh, the pay for the preacher or the missionary or for the worker of the Lord. And paying the preacher is a touchy subject with some people. And it should not be. But Paul gives six arguments here in favor of it. He gives six arguments now to show that he had a pow- had power to lead about a sister or a wife. He should be supported as well as the other apostles, he and Barnabas. And I want to point out these six things that Paul gives us in defense and in approval of uh, the support of the minister, whether it's an apostle or missionary or the pastor of the church or... A preacher, in any sense of the word, one that's ministering in the things of God, he should be taken care of. He begins in verse 7 to, to show this. First of all, in verse 7, he shows us that it's customary to pay the soldier and the farmer and the worker. This is the first argument he gives. He says, who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges? If you send a soldier out to battle, he doesn't go out there and is expected to furnish his arms and to take care of his food and to buy his uniform and to and to make his living and to support his family while he's out there fighting for the country. Some way or another, the, the people that he's fighting for are responsible to take care of his needs and the needs of his family left back at home. So he says, who goes to warfare any time at his own charges? There's no one that does that. Look at the rest of the verse. Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not the fruit thereof? This is the farmer. Look at that. And then he goes on to say, or who feedeth the flock? This is the worker on the farm, and he is not of the milk of the flock. So he shows by three arguments in that one particular thought that it's customary to pay for those that work, that are the workers, the soldier and the farmer and the worker. And then in verses 8 through 10, the second argument comes up. He shows us that it's taught by in the Mosaic Law, the support of Paul, the support of uh, the ministry is taught in the law in the Old Testament. 
And someone will immediately say, well, we're not under the law. Let's see how much we're under the law as far as this respect is concerned. Let's read it and we'll find out. Verses 8 through 10. Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Then Paul asked the question, Doth God take care for oxen? In other words, is God just so concerned about oxen that he had this scripture written down? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? Look at verse 10. For our sakes, no doubt this was written. It wasn't written, it was not written just for the sake of the oxen that treaded out the corn, but it was written to prove a point also that God takes care of his ministers. Look. For our sakes also, no doubt this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. And this has to do the, of those that work and serve the Lord as far as, uh, in spiritual matters. Because he goes on to prove a third point, not only was it written in the Mosaic Law, but it's according to the law of harvest that the ministry be supported. And in verse 11 he says, if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? So he uses the law of harvest as another argument. What has he used so far? He's used three arguments to prove are in favor of the support of the ministry. The first one was the soldier and the farmer and the worker. They are entitled to their wages. And then he says that it was written in the law of Moses. He goes and points out the Mosaic, Mosaic law. And then he says it's according to the law of harvest that if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? And he's speaking to these Corinthians. That if we have given you spiritual help, Paul had preached to them, we read in the Book of Acts 18 that he continued there in verse 11. A year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And not only just that one reference to his ministry to the Corinthians, but even before he had been the means of bringing them to believe on Christ. But after they had, there were many that believed, he continued there a year and six months preaching to them. Now, could he have been expected to do that without any reaping of their carnal things without them giving him some support. We know that many times Paul, rather than to take support from those that he ministered to, worked with his own hands. And he, he was a tent maker by trade, wasn't he? And that he would even go ahead and do his own work, not only for his own support, but a lot of times he would share that support with those that ought to be giving it to him. But he was showing that he had a right to expect it. Now then, in verse 12, he begins to show that the other apostles had used this method and certainly that he should use it as well. In verse 12, he says, If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? That's how they had supported others. Others had used this power. He says, Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. You know, I believe an age-old question, or at least a question that has existed for many hundreds of years, maybe since the time of the Apostle Paul, especially in the New Testament, and I believe that the prophets of old experienced this, that uh, the preacher uh, didn't have any right to expect anything, or they would accuse him for preaching for money, for being uh, just uh, a leech on the people, so to speak. 
And Paul is pointing this out, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. He says, we haven't used this power because Paul knew how some people talked about it. Have you ever heard people say, well, that lazy preacher, let him get out and work for a living just like I have to. How many times have you heard that? Well, if they only knew. It's not that the minister uh, does not want to work with his hands. In fact, sometimes I just, I, I'm just in a stir. To, I wish I could do something with my hands rather than the other. They have to give up the working with their hands because that is something that you surrender when you surrender to the ministry. It's that you'll put God's work first. And uh, it's something that is desirous. And, and people, I used to listen to one professor that I just dearly loved, Dr. Conley. And he had surrendered his life to the ministry. And he was a wonderful preacher and evangelist and professor and teacher. And he used to say, you know, at that time, all, all the boys that were going to school were working at some trade or another. They had to, to work their way through school. So he would say, oh, I just love to get out and do that work, you know. They just desire to do it because they get so cooked up and so uh, settled in on just that particular work and service of the Lord that you desire to use your physical body, your hands, and get out and do things. Well, uh, Paul is showing here that if, if uh, in the Lord's work they were accused of being lazy or doing otherwise, it was a false accusation. And the reason he suffered the many things that he did in the way that he did and had not used this power for the support of the ministry was, he says in the last part of verse 12, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. And what he meant by that was that some people would accuse them of preaching for money and being too lazy to work. And then uh, in verse 13, it says, Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? He goes into another argument. This is the fifth one of the arguments he gives. And what does it mean? He says here that the priesthood was supported by the tithes and the offerings of the people. The priesthood of the Old Testament. And he says, Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? In the Old Testament, that's the way it was. And they which wait at the altar are partakers of the, with the altar. And that's what God had planned in the Old Testament. The children of Israel, the book of Numbers, let me give you a reference. Numbers chapter 18, verses 21, uh, 5 through 31. It shows you that the tithes that the children of Israel brought, there was a portion of that that became the food, the meat for the priests and the Levites. And let's read a portion. Verse 25, Numbers 18. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thus Speak unto the Levites and say unto them, When ye take of the children of Israel the tithes, which I have given you uh, from them. He had given the tithes of the children of Israel to the Levites. I have given you from them for your inheritance. Then ye shall offer up an heave offering of it for the Lord, even a tenth part of the tithe. In other words, the tithe that the priest received, he was to offer up an offering to the Lord. He was to offer up a tithe of that to the Lord. But that heave offering was to have a peculiar and special use. And this your heave offering shall be reckoned unto you as though it were the corn of the threshing floor, that you had brought it in yourself, and as the fullness of the winepress. Thus ye shall also offer an heave offering unto the Lord of all your tithes, which ye receive of the children of Israel, and ye shall give thereof the Lord's heave offering to Aaron the priest. 
Out of all your gifts you shall offer every heave offering of the Lord of all the best thereof, even the hallowed part thereof, out of it. Therefore thou shalt say unto them, When ye have heaved the best thereof from it, then it shall be counted unto the Levites as the increase of the threshing floor and as the increase of the winepress. And ye shall eat it every in every place, ye and your household, see it became their food. They lived of the things. Uh, for it is your reward for your service in the tabernacle of the congregation. That's how they were paid, rewarded. And ye shall bear no sin by reason of it when ye have heaved from it the best of it, neither shall ye pollute the holy things of the children of Israel, lest ye die. So God set it up in the Old Testament. Someone says, well, that was written to the children of Israel. And that of the Mosaic Law was written to the children of Israel. But did you know all of the Bible is written for our benefit? And it says in verse 14, and you want to see who it's written to and for, even so, just like then, hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. In other words, the New Testament ministry is to be supported by the tithes of the people, just as was the Old Testament ministry. And it's God's way, and God has ordained it to be so. Even so hath the Lord ordained. So when you find people come along and say, well, the tithes were all for the Old Testament, Paul says it applies here to the New Testament, and that it applies to the support of the ministry today the same way it did in the Old Testament. And he makes the application, even so. What do those words, even so, mean if they do not mean to take the application and the illustration from the Old Testament priests and the Levites as they served in the tabernacle and apply it as Paul did to the New Testament ministry, himself and Barnabas, as well as the ministry in general. That's exactly what it means. But you know you'll find people today that don't even want to study the Old Testament. They don't want to have any reference to the Old Testament. Well, without the Old Testament, you can't even understand the New. How would you know what this was talking about if you didn't go back and read the Old Testament? You wouldn't even know what it means. That's why the Bible says, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, I believe you'll find it, it says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, before the New Testament, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So uh, the New Testament has a great deal of application to you and I today. I mean, the Old Testament has a great deal of application to you and I today, who live in New Testament and past New Testament times, in these days and age when all of it's made up. Incomplete. But now we say, well, even so hath the Lord ordained. How has the Lord ordained that this should be? Not only is it ordained in God's word, but Jesus himself ordained it. If you turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, what does Jesus say? He says to the apostles, to those that he sent out, he says, provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor script for your journey, Neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves. Now look, he goes back and uses the, the same thought in Old Testament uh, scripture to show, for the workman is worthy of his meat. The laborer is worthy of his hire, he said in another place. So he goes back and uses that same thing. So even so has the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Now then, I want you to come to verse 15 with me, please. Paul says, But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done to me. Paul was showing that he was not using this for a selfish purpose. 
because he didn't want the Corinthians to come back to that old line again and say, well, you're just doing it for money. You're a hireling. Now, there are hirelings in the Bible. There are those that, that become hirelings and care not for souls and care not for the ministry and care not for the work. But Paul is showing here that he doesn't want them to accuse him of being that, and for that reason, he's not writing this that it be so done to him. He's writing it to show that it's the proper thing to be done. But he says in the last part of verse 15, For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. How would they make Paul's glorying void if he used these things? They would say, Paul, you came into here into Corinth, you didn't come in here to win us to Christ. You didn't come in here to teach us the word. You came in here to, to take advantage of us and, and to reap of our carnal things. You came in here to, to get rich. And that's what they would say. And Paul says, they're not going to make my glory void. Now, let's go on. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Now, Paul is showing us here his motive in preaching. They had questioned uh, his rights. We've dealt with those. He had a right as well as the other apostles. Now, what about his motives? Paul's motive in preaching was that he felt a necessity. He had, he had a, a divine urge to carry out the ministry, to preach the gospel, to speak the word, to be faithful to the word. He says, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory in. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is me, is unto me, if I preach not the gospel. He said, I must preach the gospel. He's talking about a necessity, a divine urge, a willingness to do so. We find in verse 17, he speaks of the willingness to do it. In other words, he, Paul is saying here that a God-called man will preach whether he gets pay or no pay. And he was telling these Corinthians that he didn't so use them, and yet he preached, didn't he? For necessity was laid upon him. We find Jeremiah, let me give you a scripture, Jeremiah 20, verse 9, Jeremiah 20, and verse 9. It says this, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. Jeremiah was determined not to preach. Now look, But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. In other words, he had to preach. We've been told many times in, in training and studying in the seminary that if you can do anything else other than preach, do it. You know why? Because if you can get by and be at peace in doing anything else, then God has not called one to preach. If you can get by without it, don't do it. And uh, many young men found out that they were not called to preach. Because they could get by without it. Sometimes people have misunderstood the call to the ministry. If God's called you to preach, there's something about the indwelling uh, burden of the ministry and of the word that he won't let you be content in doing anything else. There must be the preaching. It doesn't mean you cannot do other things. But I'm talking about leaving the ministry out of it and not having that in your heart and in your plans and in your purpose and in your life. Paul had to make tents, as we said before, for his own support. But his his message, his ministry, his necessity was the gospel, wasn't it? He? he says, for necessity is laid upon me. That's what we're talking about. There's been many a young person that's misunderstood 
the call to the ministry. It's not just some special red light flashing in the skies. God burdens your heart with it to the extent that that day and night, it doesn't make any difference where you are or what you're doing, you always feel a responsibility to the Word of God and to the declaration of it and to the preaching of it. And there's no one that that uh, knows this better than one that is called of God to preach the Word because you cannot get away from it. Jeremiah says it was as a burning fire, we read. Uh, let me read it again. He says, uh, But his Word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. In other words, he had to do it. That's what Paul is speaking about. Some those that have misunderstood, been illustrated thus, that they saw a sign flash across the sky and it said GP, and they thought that meant go preach. And uh, one preacher says, well, it may have meant go plow. <laughs> so we don't know. It's not just something emotional that happens in an instant and you say, well, now I'm called to preach. God will burden your heart for it, cause you to be convinced of it, cause you to know it, and then you have to surrender to it. And that's the only way it's done. I mean, there may be different things that cause the different circumstances that cause this to arise in a person's life. Sometimes a man will be converted to, to the Lord and immediately God burdens his heart for the ministry, calls him to preach. Sometimes he may be a Christian for years and God burdens his heart and cause him to see the need to to preach the word. But if he's called to preach, he'll preach or run like Jonah. And he'll pay the fare thereof if he does. If he runs away, he's going to pay the price. He's going to end up in the belly of the great fish. And then when he gets out of that experience, he's going to go three days journey into the city and he's going to make it in one day and he's going to be very anxious to do the Lord's work and he's going to be about the, the Lord's business and say, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. But Paul would have preached regardless. He didn't care about these the money that these Corinthians people, that Corinthians had. He tells us in the book of Acts chapter 20, if you care to turn, let's turn to Acts chapter 20 and I'll read a verse of scripture for you and show you what Paul says. In verse 33, he says, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my necessities and to them that were with me. He's worked with his own hands. And he said he didn't come even to the Ephesians to preach to them for gain. And he has a great message to those Ephesian elders as he departs from them. But let's get back to our text now in the book of 1 Corinthians quickly. Chapter 9 and verse 17. Paul speaks of his willingness to preach. He says, For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, he could do it willingly or unwillingly. But if he did it willingly, that would be his reward. But if he did it unwillingly, he would certainly have to answer to God for it, wouldn't he? Verse 18. What is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Paul certainly didn't want to abuse his power Though he had the power to do the other things that he had spoken of and the right, he didn't want to abuse it. Verse 19, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. So Paul is showing here 
that he's a willing worker and that he's willing uh, to become all things to all men. In other words, Paul had a burden for all classes of people. And he's showing that what he was willing to do and to become and to suffer and the adjustments that he needed to make in order to win them. And though he was free from all, he says, I've made myself a servant unto all, that I might gain the more, that he might win them. Look in verse 20. And unto the Jews, he says, I became a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. In other words, Paul is showing his willingness to uh, adopt their customs, not to surrender his convictions, but to be one of them in the respect that he can understand and sympathize with their feelings and with what they know, with what they believe, and what they may understand or may not understand, that he is with them in heart in order that he might bring them to the truth. Now, he might bring them some... Uh, some of them out from under these customs that he would be willing to submit to in order to gain them. But let's notice what all he does. He says in verse 21, to them that are without law as being as without law. But notice in parentheses, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. In other words, he couldn't become without law as the Gentiles tried to claim they were without law. But he says, he would always recognize that he was under the law to Christ. But he says, that I might gain them without law. You see, he was becoming to the Jews what they needed, under the law, and Jews, that he might win them that are under the law. He was coming to the Gentiles, to those that without the law. And even though he became that outwardly, he still knew that he was under obligation or under the law to Christ. He still knew where he stood before God, even though he outwardly he would understand their, their convictions and, and their customs. And then he goes on to say, to them, uh, to the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. Paul was not weak, was he? But he became weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men. He had a an ability to adapt to the other's customs, to the other's problems, to the other's needs, that he might win them. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Save some. Sometimes it's an advantage to be able to, to fellowship with the other person's problems and needs and to understand them thoroughly and to sympathize with them to adjust with them, to laugh with them, to to uh, undergo their circumstances, their problems, or whatever they are, in order that you might be one with them to win them to, to Jesus Christ. You've heard me mention Mr. Anderson that we had the privilege of witnessing to uh, before he died, I think in a sermon not too long back. And uh, he'd gone for years and years, and he never cared much about preachers. And his wife told me later on after that uh, he was one to the Lord that she didn't believe that I could have ever gotten any place with him except that I'd go out on the job with him and I knew I understood his work, his carpenter work. And he knew that I worked. So sometimes it has its advantages. Probably I would have never been able to speak to him as just a, a pre preacher and pastor of a church had not I experienced the same kind of work that he had. And he knew it. And he knew I could do it. And he knew that I did it. 
and uh, what it takes to, to do it. Well, sometimes there are things in our lives that happen for the glory of God that we may not understand at the time. But at any rate, this was at any rate this was what I was told later on. But let's look at verse um, twenty-three now. And this I do for the gospel's sake, Paul says. I made all to all men that I might be partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? They all run. But only one, one receiveth the prize. And he says, so run that ye may obtain. He says, we're in a race, whereas we're in the race to try to obtain the reward. And all of us are in this race. And he says, so run that you might receive the prize. There's no sense running if you don't expect to try to help, uh, to win. No need to run to come in last, is there? Run to come in that you may receive the prize. And Paul felt that way about his work and service for the Lord. And he says in verse 25, he used another example. He says, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. If a man is striving to win some uh, athletic achievement, he can't go out and drink all night and smoke all night the night before he goes out to run the uh, broad jump or to run a foot race, a relay race or something. He can't do that, can he? He has to be temperate. He has to, he has to keep his body in subjection. He has to practice self-discipline. You and I must pre- practice self-discipline if we're to do anything, if we're to do our best in the work. Now look what it says. Paul says in verse 26, I therefore so run, not as uncertainty, so fight I, as if he were in a ring, boxing, or if he were fighting uh, with uh, in the gladiators, or however might the battle be. He says, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. What is he saying here? He's saying, I'm so controlling myself and disciplining myself that I can win in the race of life, that I can win the battle, the fight. I can fight the good fight of faith, that I will be successful in the service of God. Now, someone says, when you read that last part, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway, that Paul was afraid of being lost. That's not so. Paul had no fear whatsoever of being lost. He has no reference here to being lost. He just didn't want to be used up or so out of control are so undisciplined that he couldn't serve God. He didn't want to be like a broken piece of pottery that was set on a shelf and set aside because it was a leaky vessel. He didn't want to be unfit for use in the service of God. You know why I don't believe Paul felt that he was, that here this refers to, he felt that he could be lost after such service? Because he said in other places, he said, I know whom I believe. And he says, I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He wasn't worried about that, was he? He knew that he was safe, but he feared that he would be unfit for service for the Lord and that he therefore would lose his reward and not be able to win the battle, run the race, and win the victory. And that's why he's saying, lest by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. That's what it has reference to. Okay? Let us bow our heads for just a word of prayer.